You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hi, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. This past Shabbat, we read Parshat Shoftim, which opens like this, Judges and officers, you shall appoint in your gates. And so we see that God has not only decreed that we shall establish for ourselves a place to dwell in the land of Israel, but we're also supposed to build a holy society. There's supposed to be a governmental authority in the land of Israel whose mission is supposed to be to fight God's battles against Israel's enemies and conquer the land and, of course, establish order. And part of that order is to anoint judges. And I could bet that this past Shabbat, all the rabbis and the Rav's Reform, conservative, orthodox, we're talking about, we're connecting this posture of the judges to what's going on in Israel with the judicial reforms, because there is a real subject of balance of power. How much power does the government have? How much do the courts have? And if we have a true Jewish state, what is the balance of power between the Sanhedrin and the king? But what's most important for us is that we see here that there's a mitzvah of establishing a Jewish government, a king, judges, and a police apparatus in order to enforce that law. And this may sound like Khomeiniism or some zealot Islamic concept, but we're supposed to establish a theocracy in accordance with God's mitzvot. And this whole concept of setting up a Jewish government and establishing a Jewish society based on Torah with Shoftim and Shotrim, this stands in such contrast to what the Gullus was for us. I mean, in the exile, we were just at the mercy of the nations. They could do whatever they want with us, and they did. They used us and abused us and exiled us from country to country. We were always under the thumb of the nations. So we're not used to all this, and we haven't adapted to it. Having your own state with your own judges and your own army and your own policemen, imagine that. But that's what makes Judaism different than any other religion that was supposed to do that, was supposed to live in a country and set all this up, run our Torah state and be allowed into the nations. Now, today, we do have Jewish policemen and Jewish judges. The problem is, they're not doing what the Torah says. The Yishpatu Mishpat Sedek. That's what's repeated over and over again in our Pasha, that they're going to rule justly. We certainly don't have that today. But I'm talking theoretically, this whole concept that we see in our Pasha, which guides us how to set up a Jewish state and establish Jewish law in that state with kings and judges and officers. That's our ultimate goal. And again, it's so removed of anything we ever had in the Gullus. It's the very opposite of what we had in the exile. And that's why for many, it's hard to relate to this. Most of, you know, Orthodox religious Jewry is still focusing on all those Hasidic stories where the big bad czar or the Pecha or some king issued an evil edict against the Jewish people and the Jews prayed and did Hishtadlut and sent the Tzaddik to overturn the decree and the Jews miraculously were saved. For now, anyway. But we see now that's not the ideal situation. You're not supposed to be in somebody else's country worrying all the time if they're going to kill you or expel you. You're supposed to be in your own country fighting the wars of Hashem, conquering the land, and establishing the third Jewish commonwealth. Now, going back to our opening verse that you shall appoint judges and officers, it says like this in the Midrash, Rav Eliezer ben Shamua says, if there are police, there are judges. If there are no police... There are no judges. So what does that mean? The intent is 
that if there are police, you can enforce the rulings of the judges. And then the judge's word will endure. Otherwise, if you can't enforce it, it's like there are no judges. If you don't have police to enforce the rulings, then everything the judges do, it's just a farce. So we're talking here about, and this is a dirty word, religious coercion. Now, before everybody gets all upset and you, you know, turn off the channel, let's think this through for a second. The Torah, as we know, is a system of halacha, of laws. Is there such a thing as a system of laws that don't need to be enforced? All laws have to be enforced. If not, they have no tokef, they have no validity. So why should the Torah be any different? Why shouldn't the Torah have to be enforced? And what's with this inferiority complex that every other system of laws you can enforce, you have to enforce, you have to compel the people to do it. Why should the Torah be any different? And when you think about it, isn't everything a matter of coercion? When you send your kid to school, he's got an educational program. There's a curriculum, right? Now, what's that curriculum? You're coercing the child, aren't you? That's coercion. Whatever educational program happens to be in place, what your kid is learning, he's learning a particular curriculum, he's being coerced. So if you have to coerce anyway, you might as well coerce good things. Isn't everything coercion? Isn't there coercion now in schools? A kid goes to school, he learns about gender fluidity and all the other crap they might teach him. Ah, but what happens if the kid's learning Chumash with Rashi, if that becomes part of the curriculum, oh, that's religious coercion. You can't do that. So again, everything's coercion. You just have to coerce the right thing. And I want to read what the Sefer HaChinuch writes about this mitzvah, about appointing judges and officers. It's mitzvah 491. It says like this, the mitzvah is to appoint judges and policemen who will coerce mitzvah observance and restore it by force those who have strayed from the truth. They will command regarding what is appropriate to do and will prevent unsavory acts from occurring. Now you might say, oh, that's horrible, religious coercion. But just listen to the continuation of what it says in the Sefer Chinuch. The rational behind this mitzvah is obvious. That through it, we can establish our religion. And he says, by being accustomed to goodness and uprightness, that is by being used to being good. See, everything's a matter of habit. By getting used to it, by being accustomed to goodness and uprightness through fear, it will become second nature for them to act justly and righteously out of love. So at the beginning, it'll be out of fear. But once they see it's the right way, the people will start observing the mitzvahs out of love through their recognizing the path of truth. That is when they realize and they feel that doing something right and true and holy, they're going to love it. And the Sefer HaChinuch continues, as the wise say, human nature is a function of habit. Just as nature forces a person to do what he must, so too does constant repetition render traits second nature and compel him to adopt the practice forever. And then when the people take that path of integrity and belief and choose goodness, then goodness will cling to them and God is happy with his works. So yeah, there's a matter of coercion in a Jewish state because through the coercion, you'll adopt good habits. You'll get used to it. It will become second nature. And when that person sees how beautiful and holy it is, he learns to keep the Torah even without coercion. Now think about this. If you're a religious person, that's how you raise your kids. Isn't there a kind of a coercion there? You send them to Talmud Torah. 
You make him wash his hands. You make him say the brachas. You're forcing him, aren't you? He wouldn't do it if you didn't want him to. You make him bench. You make sure he makes a bracha before he eats. You're doing religious coercion on the kid. But what happens when he grows up, hopefully, and it doesn't happen all the time, this is what we pray for, it will become habit. He'll get used to it. And as his intellect develops, he'll start to understand that, wow, this is great. This is the proper way. This is the holy way. He'll do it without coercion. That's how every religious father and mother raise their child. It has to start with some coercion. The kid doesn't know what's right or wrong. And let's say you don't impose upon him all that Jewish stuff at such a young age. So what do you do instead? I don't know. You put him in front of a television set or in front of a computer screen or or in front of a smartphone. That isn't coercion. It's coercion to be an idiot. So again, everything's a matter of coercion. So if you got to coerce, then coerce the Torah. So we don't have to be afraid of these terms because it doesn't mean the police are going to be in somebody's house checking if they're putting the fillet on or if the woman is wearing a head covering. That's not really what it means here. And the leftists especially love to talk about religious coercion. You know, when I came to Israel, I went to an ulpan to learn Hebrew and the teacher was a leftist. What else? And I'm telling you, one of the first words we learned on the first day was kfiadatit, religious coercion. That was what she taught us. That's not a beginner's word, is it? But they just love that. So religious coercion is out, but woke coercion and gender fluidity coercion, well, that's not coercion, right? That's just letting the person be what he wants to be. Do what you feel. If you feel like a boy, be a boy. If you feel like a girl, be a girl. We don't want to coerce you. Speaking of religious coercion, you know, this past Thursday, the prime minister came to Tel Aviv for a ceremony of the opening of the Tel Aviv light rail. So Bibi came to snap the ribbon, the inauguration of this uh, light rail, and a few hundred Tel Avivniks were protesting. Of course, they hate Bibi. That's part of the reason. But they were holding signs that said like this, no kfiadatit, no religious coercion. What do they mean? Well, they want the Tel Aviv light rail to run on Shabbat. This is Tel Aviv. It's not Jerusalem where all those fanatical religious Jews live. And they're upset because that's religious coercion that the light rail isn't going to run on the Sabbath. So not only do they lack Jewish identity, they're anti. And it's sad because, you know, a lot of normal people, Jews and Gentiles, are looking for more spirituality in their lives and holiness. And even amongst those Jews that aren't that religious, there's a lot of communities where Shabbat observance has become the latest trend. It's becoming more and more fashionable to turn off your cell phone and not be available 24 hours a day, that at least one day during the week, you unplug, you spend time with family and friends, preparing food, not because you want a lamhaba, you're looking for reward in the next world, but it's rewarding in this world too. And so a lot of Jews and Gentiles understand that being connected to social media 24-7, there are problems with that. That's not such a great idea. A lot of people are beginning to understand that, but not these Tel Avivniks. They don't want to unplug. They want to be connected 24-7 to the media, and they want that light rail in Tel Aviv to run 24-7 too. And the thing is that in the public sphere, it really is important to have some semblance of Judaism in the Jewish state, at least when it comes to public transportation, that the face of the state, it should be Jewish. It should have some Jewish character to it. 
What would be special about the state of Israel if there's nothing Jewish about it? You don't have to be a religious fanatic to understand that. You know, when Menachem Begin finally came to power in 1977, it was considered a huge revolution. It's kind of what happened now when this right-wing government took power and all the leftists got all panicky. Because before Begin, you had Levi Eshkol and Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir and Rabin, all these Ashkenazi socialists. And then when Begin came to power after 29 years in the opposition, it was considered a huge upheaval because he represented the Sephardi Jews, even though Begin himself was from Poland, but the Sephardi Jews loved him. And up to then, they had no representation. And he was a warm Jew, a traditional Jew, very knowledgeable about Judaism. And one of the things Begin did is that he shut down LL operations on Shabbat. He wanted LL Airlines to stop flying 24-7 and during the Jewish festivals. He wanted to put a stop to that. And in May 1982, he addressed the Knesset. Now, before he gave his speech, you have to understand that there was a, a lot of tension in the Knesset. You had the most powerful labor unions in the country, the L workforce and the union bosses, all upset about this idea of closing LL down for Shabbat. And they were petitioning Knesset members not to let Begin's law pass through, which would shut down LL during Shabbat and the festivals. And you could imagine what the leftist members were saying in those days, like Yossi Sarid, when the benches erupted into pandemonium and they're yelling at him, why don't you shut down the television on Shabbat too? What, you're going to stop soccer games on Shabbat too? And then somebody else yelled out, what do you want to close down the whole country and turn us back to the dark ages? But Menachem Begin wasn't phased. Anyway, when the pandemonium and the heckling stopped, Begin delivered one of the greatest speeches ever on the podium of the Knesset. And I'm not going to read it all, but what he did at the beginning was talk of the importance of the Sabbath how Jews throughout the 2,000-year exile observed the Sabbath and the Sabbath protected them and they protected the Sabbath. And now I'll quote a little bit of his speech. So are we in our own reborn Jewish state to allow our blue and white LL planes to fly to and fro as if to broadcast to the world that there is no Shabbat in Israel? Should we, who by faith and tradition heard the commandment at Sinai, now deliver a message to all? through our LL planes. No, don't remember the Sabbath day. Forget the Sabbath day. Desecrate the Sabbath day. I shudder at the thought that the aircraft of our national carrier has been flying all over the world on the seventh day all these years in full view of Jews and Gentiles alike. Now, when Begin said that, there was still a lot of heckling going on. And then he addressed the whole issue of profit. You know, making a profit, because that was the bottom line. The workers of Alal are going to get burnt. The company is going to lose profit if they don't fly there in Shabbat. And Begin says like this, we can't engage in profit and loss calculations when it comes to the eternal heritage of the Jewish people. There is no way of assessing the religious, national, social, historical, and ethical values of the Sabbath day by the yardstick of financial loss or gain. In our revived Jewish state, we simply cannot engage in such calculations. If it were not for the Shabbat that restored the souls and revived the spiritual lives week by week of our long-suffering nation, we would have been brought down to the lowest levels of materialism and moral and intellectual decay. More than the Jews have kept the Sabbath day, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Anyway, by the time he ended the speech, he got a standing ovation. And the Knesset voted, and the tally was 58 in favor of Megan's proposal, and 54 against. Anyway, today, El Al does not fly on Shabbat or on the festivals. 
it conducts itself as a Jewish Airlines. And you know what? It's not hurting for profit. It's doing just fine. So we see here this struggle over the character of the Jewish state. It's been going on for a long time. But we're lacking the fiery leadership of Menachem Begin and his warm feelings for Yiddishkeit that our leaders today are lacking. Now, I know Begin ended up being a great disappointment, gave back to Sinai. The Lebanon War was a disaster. But he's got his schiot, and you can't take that away from him. Now, getting back to our Pasha, by learning Pasha Shoftim, you start to get an idea of what a Jewish leader is supposed to be like. What are the qualities, the character attributes that are necessary to be a leader in Israel? So if you look at the commandment of appointing a king, it says like this, when you come into the land that the Lord has given you to possess, you shall set a king over you. And then the verses start to give some of the limitations of the king. Lo yarbelo susim, he's not allowed to have too many horses. Lo yarbelo nashim, he's not allowed to have too many wives. The kesev is ahav, lo yarbelo mo'od, he's not allowed to have too much silver and gold. So we see these restrictions put upon him and there's more. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he has to write for himself a copy of this Torah, of this book. And he has to read this Torah all the days of his life in order that he fear the Lord his God and to keep the words of this law. Now, why does the king have to do all this? It explains it. So that his heart doesn't become arrogant over his brethren. Now, there's much more to this besides walking around with a Sefer Torah all the time, like it says here, when he davened Shmon Asrei, he has to lie on the floor during the entire prayer of Shmon Asrei. So why are there restrictions like this upon the king? Because we have to keep the king humble. After all, the king, he has tremendous authority. We're talking here about the restrictions, but we haven't talked about what he can do. And basically he's able to do whatever he wants if it doesn't go against Torah law. So with all that, and the fact that the people all day are saying, Yechia Melech, long live the king, and they're bowing down to the king, and they're giving him all this kavod, Hashem wants to keep the king grounded. How do you keep him grounded? How do you keep him humble? With all these laws that we just mentioned. That's how you keep him down to earth. And that's a tremendous difference between the Jewish leader, according to Torah, and the leaders you see today. If you look at the first two kings of Israel, Saul, David, and before that, Moses, their greatest quality was the humility. That's why Saul was chosen in the first place. And scripture states that Moses was the most humble man of all. And David says in Tehillim, I'm just a worm. Why is that such an important quality? Because if you don't have it, you're going to have a big ego. If you don't have a natural humility as part of your makeup, when you get to that high position of power, it's going to get to your head. So the Jewish leaders were humble. That is the number one attribute. Now you contrast that to leaders today. How do we choose a leader? By their humility? You can't be humble and win a democratic election. After all, in a democracy, people vote for the guy they think is best. So he's got to brag all day about everything he ever did. If he doesn't brag, nobody's going to know what he did. So because the people are voting for you, you got to blow your horn all day. So that's the very antithesis of humility. So that's the major difference that the Jewish leaders of old were chosen for the midot, for their character attributes. Their Yereshamayim, the chesed. The Midrashim talk about how Moshe and David were very dedicated shepherds, devoted to their flocks. And that was like their training grounds to be devoted to the Jewish people. But a leader today, it's all very superficial. He's judged on his ability to make a great speech. Look at guys like Clinton and Obama. I mean, what did they have in their character that made them worthy? They had one thing. They were great campaigners. 
They knew how to make a speech. But what does being a great orator have to do with your character traits? That makes you a better person? Makes you a smarter person? Any snake oil salesman could make a good speech. You know who makes good speeches? You know who talks well? Used car salesmen. But you wouldn't want them to be the president of the United States. Would you choose your dentist or your doctor based on his ability to give a good speech? Would you say, look, the doctor, you know, he messed me up. He, he gave me the wrong prescription, the wrong medicine. But what a speaker he is. No, you just want him to do his job right. So why is it that when you're talking about the most important position of all, running a country where you have to solve real problems, suddenly we're looking at such superficial criteria if the guy's a great speaker or not. But that's how it is, especially in America, where it's a very superficial kind of culture. And that's why a guy like Ron DeSantis, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm out of line to talk about this. And I don't know if this is a great example or not, but just as an idea, a guy like Ron DeSantis, who really is running a pretty good state, everybody seems to be moving to Florida, but he doesn't stand a chance of being the Republican candidate because, I don't know, he's not a good enough campaigner. I mean, if you're going by ability of a guy who's got a good record, you think he'd be doing a lot better than he is. And so what I want to say is that if we get back to the sources, get back to learning Tanakh, and that's why I give a sure in the Bible, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, you can tune in on that and we'll learn about authentic Jewish leadership, the Davids and the Sauls and the Jonathans and the Yoavs and Solomon. Now Solomon, by the way, did multiply horses and he did multiply women and silver and gold. And the Torah is saying here not to do that. So what happened with Solomon? Well, to find out, listen to my Bible classes and check it out. Like I said, this Pasha, Pasha Shoftim, really hits upon those national issues. For instance, how do you fight a war? How to conduct a siege upon a city? How do you subjugate that city? What is the halacha for the non-Jewish residents of that city? This is all halacha. It's not politics. And one of the most fascinating chapters in this Pasha is how to prepare for war. You see, going to war and preparing for it, the Torah tells us how to do that. We have a description here where there's a Mashuach Melchama, a priest who's anointed especially for war. And he gives the soldiers a pep talk better than any pep talk you're going to ever hear from any football coach. Because it's all about morale. The soldiers have to have morale, motivation. So listen to this motivational speech he gives the Jewish soldiers before going out to war. He says like this, Shema Yisrael, hero Israel, today you're about to wage war against your enemies. Don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted. And don't panic. And do not break ranks before them. The Lord your God, he's going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies and he will deliver you. And then what happens after that is that the lower officers, they start to speak to the people and say, is there any man amongst you who's built a new house and hasn't begun to live in it? You can go home. Is there any man among you who planned a vineyard and has not redeemed its first crop? Let him go home. Is there any man who just got engaged to a woman and has not yet married her? Then let him go home so that he doesn't die in war and have another man marry her. Is there any man amongst you who is afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home now rather than have his cowardliness demoralize his brethren. So the Torah understands that the worst thing you can have in the army ranks is fear because fear is contagious. And so if any of these people are having second thoughts because of whatever reason, they built a new house, they planted a vineyard, they're about to get married. If that's causing you to have second thoughts and you're afraid to die, just go home now 
Because again, if you're afraid, it's catchy. That's going to project to all the soldiers. So just go home right now. Because just as fear is contagious, so is courage and bravery. When the soldiers see a brave commander, that inspires them to fight better. Because they're looking at the commander, and if he's not afraid, then why should I be afraid? And that's why if you read about all the great you know, commanders, you know, the Wingates or the Trumpledors, part of what made them great was their courage. And that was contagious to all the soldiers. And it made them fight better. Now, if the emotion of fear is forbidden, that a Jewish soldier is frightened, and if he does, he's spilling blood, he's demoralizing the army, as the Rambam says, what can you say about the state of Israel whose entire policy is driven by fear, where every move and every step they make, they have to measure what will the Goyim say? Fear of the Goyim, that's what drives us. That's what drives Israeli policy. It's a policy that demoralizes the people. But getting back to that speech, that pep talk by the Meshuach Melchama, by the priest anointed for war, he opens it up by saying, Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. Now we usually think that a Jew says Shema Yisrael as the last words before he dies. But we see here that the Shema Yisrael, here it's the voice of the Jewish warrior priest to the Jewish warriors. It's a call to the Jewish warrior, not to the Jewish victim. And Rabbi Meir Kahana, he wrote an article about this, which I want to read some of it. It was written in 1989. And it's called Shema Yisrael versus Al-Akbar. And he opens the piece describing some of the Arabs' attacks on Jews. And there were plenty of them back in 1989. And during those attacks, the Arabs, before stabbing the Jew, they would yell, Al-Akbar, meaning Allah is great. And the Jew, feeling in danger of death, he would shout, Shema Yisrael. And Rabbi Kahana writes about that. And herein lies the meaning of the struggle. And herein lies the shame of the struggle. It has become the slogan, the war call, the triumphant shout of every Muslim attack on Jews. Allah Akbar. The Arab who drove the Tel Aviv Yushalayim bus off the cliff. He shouted it. The Arab who attacked my nephew soldier on the streets of Jerusalem shouted it. It's the theme of the struggle of the Muslims against the Jewish state. And it is the theme of attack, of power, of defeating the Jewish enemy, of defeating the God of the Jews, of triumph for Islam, Allah Akbar, that's the voice of the Muslim attacking the Jewish victim. And the victim, he cries out, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael becomes the symbol of the victim, of the Jew attacked, of the dying Jew. The great concept of Shema Yisrael, which was meant to be the triumphant and powerful and resounding cry of Jewish victory and the omnipotence of the God of the Jews becomes a thin, small, quiet voice in the desert. The voice of Kiddush Hashem, Jewish sanctification becomes one of degradation, of Jewish defeat and death. Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. This is the way the Meshuach Melchama, the priest who was ordained as the one who led the Jews into battle, would begin his speech to the Jewish army. Shema Yisrael, hero Israel. You draw close to battle this day against your enemies. Do not fear. Let not your heart be faint and don't be alarmed. Shema Yisrael, it's not the plaintive cry of a Jewish victim, but the clarion call of the Mashuch Melchama, the anointed priest of war. It's not a numbing prayer of defeat, but a certain assured call of triumph. Not the voice of the victim, but the roar of the conqueror. It is the affirmation of the real meaning of Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the only one, the all-powerful one, the all-conquering one, the one who is over all gods, including Allah. 
we have taken a Shema Yisrael that was meant to be the slogan of Jewish power and the omnipotence of our God and turned it into a plaintive cry of a victim. We took a cry of power and we turned it into weakness. The reason that the Muslim shouts Allah Akbar is because we allow him to think so. On that glorious day in 1967, when Jewish troops swept into the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, there were no shouts of Allah Akbar. There was only fear and terror in the eyes and hearts of the Muslims who saw and felt and knew Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad. It was the Jewish retreat and fear of the world and of the nations that reinstalled in the heart of the Muslim the belief that Allah Akbar, that Allah is great. In direct proportion to Jewish lack of faith and fearful prostration before the Gentiles, did the Muslim grow in certainty and confidence in Allah. What a terrible indictment of the Jewish people. And so, a Muslim proudly attacks a Jew and cries, Allah Akbar, and the Jew, in fear, cries out, Shema Yisrael, not as a war cry, but as a death chant, Chivul Hashem. That's part of an article by Rabbi Meir Kahana that he wrote in 1989, Shema Yisrael versus Allah Akbar. Okay, I'm psyched, let's go. I'm ready to go out and I don't know, do what. That's it for me. If you want to hear my Bible classes, it's Lenny Goldberg Bible Classes. You can Google that and I'll be back next time next week for more.